The last Lord's Day, you'll remember we looked at verses 1 through 5, which are sort of the transition between visions 2 and 3 in the book of the Revelation. And so we're entering upon the third of the seventh vision. The illustration that I used was that of, a, of watching a play, and we've just watched a scene unfold before our eyes. The curtain closes while the people backstage reset the stage, and then the curtain opens back up and we're allowed to prepare ourselves for the next scene. But we, having the inside of the Word of God, have been given backstage passes. So not only do we get to see what happens, we actually got to run around backstage, watch them reset, and then come back around to see the curtain open up. And the resetting of the stage took place in verse 2, where John says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. They, they assumed a formation, trumpets were distributed, and then we just sort of leave them there for a second while we see the prayers of the saints come into the presence of God. Well, now we're moving into what we might call the vision proper. And I want to remind you of what I remind you at the beginning of each of these separate visions. Every vision is meant to give us a broad overview of the entire church age. This book, the book of the Revelation, is not meant to be so much chronological as it is theological. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the future. Now sometimes... The focus, as we look at these visions, sometimes the focus will be more on the church as she exists on the earth. Sometimes the church as she's seen before the throne of God. Sometimes more a heavenly perspective. Sometimes the focus is more on the present age. Sometimes the focus is more on the eternal state or what we might call the eschaton. But in every vision, we get to the eschaton in some way. Every time. And every vision spans the entirety of the church age. So let me, let's just do like a, a, a quick sweeping overview of these chapters, verses 8 through, or chapters 8 through 11, and we'll see how this works very broadly. We saw the, the transition in verses 1 through 5. The rest of chapter 8, going through chapter 10, we have the blowing of these six trumpets, which are descriptions of things that will characterize the present church age. Age right now. In chapter 11, verses 1 to 14, we have a picture of the church during all of this. And then at the end of chapter 11, beginning at verse 15, the seventh trumpet is blown. Now, if we know anything of the language of the Revelation, we've all heard the language of the last trumpet. When the last trumpet sounds, um, that is not a reference to the current president of the United States. As, um, some of you may have heard, it is simply the last trumpet which leads into, notice verse, the language of verse 18, the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants. The end of verse 18, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's the judgment. That's the end. That's what happens at the end. And then in verse 19, God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant was seen Within the temple. John gets, gets just a little peek into the heavenlies and sees what? The ark. The presence of God in the midst of His people. And then the vision stops. 
And every, every time we see through to the end of one of these visions, we go back to the beginning of the church age every time and watch the characteristics of the church age leading into the eschaton. And we, it's like we're pressing further, further, further until we get to the very last vision, chapters 20 to 22. And for two whole chapters, we are in the new heavens and the new earth. We have pressed through into the eschaton. That's what we're seeing. That characterizes every vision. So that helps us make sense of things that might not be so clear, like trumpets. What's the deal with the trumpets? Well, we use our, our broader understanding of the book to then interpret these, these specific details. Why are trumpets used here to describe the activities of the present age? Well, again, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So we can say, what does the Bible teach us about trumpets? What would John have known about a trumpet? Well, trumpets were used throughout the ancient world, especially amongst the people of God, for various purposes. Let me read you several passages of Scripture. Numbers chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking the camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. A trumpet was used to assemble the people and dissemble the people, to gather them and to scatter them. Leviticus 25, 9, Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet through all your land. The trumpet was blown to signify a particular holy day amongst the people of God. To let them know this day is not like the other days. It's a special day. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 34, we read, Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel, then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Very simply, trumpets were, were blown to signify or to let the people know something is about to happen, something significant. It was, it was an attention getter, in other words. They didn't blow the trumpet and say, Today is Tuesday. But if it was the Day of Atonement, or if a new king was being anointed, or if they needed to gather the assembly, a trumpet would be blown to announce to the people something special is happening. Well, here we have seven trumpets. If we go back to Joshua chapter 6 and the story of the, the people of Israel marching around the city of Jericho, we know there were seven priests who were given seven trumpets, and they were told to blow those trumpets, and the, the blowing of the trumpet would signified ultimately the judgment of God coming upon Jericho. When the trumpets were blown for the last time, the walls of the city crumbled. The foreboding trumpet sound would have been an ominous warning to strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. Trumpets were used in battle very, very many times. Another example, Jeremiah chapter 51 in verse 27, set up a standard on the earth. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations for war against her. Summon against her the kingdoms Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up horses like bristling locusts. Now what's happening in that section? They're blowing the trumpet. They're summoning the nations for battle against whom? Verse 24 of that chapter says, I will repay Babylon and the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. 
So there, the trumpet is being used to call the nations to battle against Babylon. Why? Because Babylon needs to be punished for their wickedness against the people of God, against Zion. Now, what have we just read in the book of the Revelation? The gospel's going forth, conquering and to conquer. Persecution will follow the preaching of the gospel. The saints cry out, how long? The Lord, the, the prayers, chapter 8, the prayers come into the presence of God. He hears them. He answers them in judgment on the earth. Judgment for what? For the wickedness they have done against the people of God. The trumpets are symbolic of the temporal judgments which come upon the world in answer to the prayers of the saints. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, the prayers come before God and then the angel throws the fire on the earth. Here we're seeing sort of the, the opening up of what that looks like. God's answering the prayers. Ultimate judgment, remember if we go back to chapter 7, the four winds are being held back. Ultimate and complete global judgment is being restrained, but temporal judgments are unleashed throughout the present age. And we're going to look at these, these four trumpets in, this, in chapter 8 today. The trumpets are symbolic of temporal judgments which come upon the world in answer to the prayers of the saints. In these first four trumpets we see all of nature is being marshaled against wicked men. The first trumpet deals with judgments on the land. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Now as we walk through these these trumpets, you'll notice, the first thing you typically notice is the, the relationship between the language here and the language that was used in the plagues that God brought on Egypt in the book of the Exodus. Now, the, the relationship is, is loose, but it is enough for us to at least be reminded that this is the activity of God. God's doing this. For example, here we have hail and fire. Well, we saw that in the Exodus. Well, now we have hail and fire mixed with blood. Now, just imagine... Hail and fire or lightning coming out of the sky with blood. The, the picture is obviously meant to convey to us the, the gruesome reality of the terrors of God. Who wants to imagine bloody hailstones and lightning plummeting from the sky? It's, it's, it churns your stomach. That's the point. In Psalm 105, verses 32 and 33, describing, <clears throat> excuse me, describing the Exodus, it says, He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. Now, this kind of language is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the judgments of God, not in the Exodus. For example, Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 22 and 23. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will make my greatness and my holiness and make myself known or show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. 
Then they will know that I am the Lord. Just like in, in Egypt, these judgments are coming. And what is the goal? These nations, when I finish, they're going to know I'm the Lord. I am God. And God is still using the land, trees, destruction of land, trees, grass, herbs, as a means of temporal judgment. To, to think of it very simply, if the ground is unprofitable, if trees don't bring forth fruit, if, if the, the, the farms and the fields do not bring forth their yield, we're in, we're in trouble. In the book of Genesis, we know that God cursed the ground because of sin. The, the difficulty that we have tilling the earth and waiting for plants to come up and having to walk around our garden and through the garden and pull out the weeds is because of sin. That is judgment upon the sins of men. Now, for most of us, our dealing with the soil and the land is almost sort of like a hobby. We live in a culture where if our garden doesn't make it, we go to the grocery store and we have shelf after shelf after shelf and cooler after cooler and freezer after freezer and we can just go grab a bag of frozen vegetables and go home and we've got food. Now just recently we, we had a little scare where we, people began to talk about a break in the food supply chain and we begin to kind of start thinking, what happens if I can't go to the store and, and buy meat? How am I going to get meat? I hope somebody has some meat to give me because I don't have any meat. What happens if I can't go to the store and buy eggs? What if I, happens if I can't go to the store and buy flour? What am I going to do? Well, if we begin to think in those terms, which is the only way they knew how to live in the ancient world, we realize that when, when the earth itself is, is cursed, and if the ground ceases to produce, even in a localized area, let's just think the, the central United States... We're in trouble. We're in, a, we're in a mess of trouble. Now notice these things were, it says, these were thrown upon the earth. At the very least we see heavenly oversight, but at best the Lord Jesus Himself is the executor of all of the judgments. The one who shed His blood for my soul is the one overseeing these things as they're poured out upon the earth. And that's why there is a limitation in these plagues, these, these judgments. A third of the earth. A third of the trees. It's not a full destruction. It's a, a, a decent-sized portion. It's, not, it's, it's less than half, but it's more than a fourth. But it, it is a... a a portion of destruction. It is limited in its, in its effects. One-third is destroyed, but two-thirds are left. Notice the second trumpet, verses 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now notice we've moved from land into the sea. And in the ancient world, just like today, the oceans, the seas, play a large part in food supply and in commercial enterprise. We eat creatures from the sea, and trade and commerce is done on the sea. Now just this week, I was able to see one seaport in Charleston... And I can assure you that if something happens on the sea and our sea trade is, is messed up, again, we're in for a lot of trouble. 
when you recognize these, you know, tractor trailer size containers, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, loading on ships, making their way across the ocean, back and forth constantly, all the time. This is where we get many of our products in, in this country. If something happens there, we're in trouble. In the ancient world, they knew the same thing. Their, their seaports were very important. That's why he says a third of the ships were destroyed. These, these cities, remember if you picture the map, many of them, or a few of them at least, were seaport cities. But again, the judgment is limited to a third. A third of the living creatures, a third of the ships. Two-thirds live, two-thirds of the ships continue in their, in their work. Notice the third trumpet. We move from the sea, moving inland into the fresh waters. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now, we know from the very beginning, a, a healthy water source is crucial, essential to any civilization. Even if, we, if, if you use what we call city water, that doesn't mean that there's a factory somewhere where they're making water. You're, you still get your water from the same place we all get our water, just with some more hands in the, in the mix. But if we don't have water, what happens? We die. We've had a lot of rain recently, and I was at the store the other day, and a man was behind me in the line complaining about how much rain we had had, and I said, if it doesn't rain, we die. Period. We have to have the rain. Several places in Scripture, God gives bitter water as judgment. One, one example, Jeremiah 9.15, Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. This is just another act of judgment. Now we could, we could spend all of our time thinking of all of the ways that the earth is cursed, that the oceans uh, might struggle to produce or think negative things might happen in the sea, how uh, bad things can happen to our water and water sources, the nations of the world that don't have healthy water sources. The point is judgment is coming and, it's, and God is using the natural elements of the world and again, a third of the waters. Many people died. Not everybody. Many people died. Notice the fourth trumpet, verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, here's another one of those points where we see that a, a quote, literal reading, or a chronological reading of the book of the Revelation simply won't work, because these elements have already been destroyed back in chapter 6. The sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth. How did, how did they get back up there? Well, again, we're recapitulating events. In, in that scene, we were looking at the final judgment. Here, we're seeing temporal judgments that point to that coming final judgment. Remember, trumpets are meant to warn that something is happening. Something greater is coming. Now, just picture it. A third of the sun was struck. 
a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. We read that and we say, what does that even mean? How does a third of light work? How, how do we divide these things? Again, the point is we can't understand this in any way except symbolically the heavenly bodies themselves are meant to be warning signs to us of the coming judgment. As one author describes it as cosmic disturbances. Again, we could spend all day talking about outer space and comets and planets and stars. But these cosmic disturbances are meant to remind men that the end is coming. The heavenly lights which seem to be a constant staple in our lives. They're not eternal. If, you're in a, if, if you know much about astronomy, you know that stars, quote, die. They burn out. That star stopped existing. Okay, Our sunshine is what? A star. Who's to keep it burning even now? Why hasn't it burnt out yet? God is sustaining it. These things are not forever. We look up in the sky and we, we don't know every star. We don't know their names. We just assume when I look out, I'm seeing the same stars that I saw last night. How do you know that there, there are not two missing that you saw last night? We, we don't. We, these things are not eternal. Again, it's a third of the sun, a third of the moon. Not all of the sun, not all of the moon, not all of the stars. And in this little section... It closes with a, what is kind of strange to us. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And remember, those who dwell on the earth throughout the revelation, that is a descriptor of the unbelieving world. This, this eagle is saying, if you thought that's bad, just wait. There's more to come. That's not all. It's going to get even worse. Now in Luke chapter 18, we have this parable that we call the parable of the unjust judge. And at the end of that parable, Jesus Himself says, Would, Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? We see in the Revelation, the saints have cried out, chapter 6. God has heard, verses 1 through 5, and now God is giving justice. When? Speedily. He's giving it. Those who His Son has purchased with the price of His own blood are crying out to Him. His blood-bought children are crying out as they suffer persecution and afflictions and God is executing the justice. As one commentator says, God's righteous wrath summons every aspect of our environment to indict human rebellion. Everything. As we said several weeks ago, everything is crying out, destroy the sinners. Get rid of the sinners. The earth is crying out, get them off. We've often heard men say, if God is so good, if your God is so good, then why 
Why is the world the way it is? Why do bad things happen? Well, we can answer. Our God is so good, in fact, that He is marshalling every single aspect of the created universe as an army against those who have afflicted and come against His people. That's how good He is. But they don't have eyes to see it. God in the past has called heaven and earth to witness against men. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He says, heaven, come here. Earth, come here. Look, I raised them up and they rebelled. You see it, right? He's calling them to account. He shows us here that the same heavens and the same earth, the entire created order, stand as a testimony in every generation against the wickedness of men. But there's more than that. More than just justice, more than just judgment. We could ask, what, what's another purpose of all this? What's the goal? What's God, what's God getting at here? Look at the end of verse, or chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What's another goal in the temporal judgments? It's repentance. Repentance. Everywhere men turn... They are being warned by God. And the temporal judgments are meant to bring men to repentance. Notice, again, a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. A third of the waters became wormwood. A third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon. A third of their light might be darkened. A third of the day. A third of the night. A third, a third, a third. Many people died. A third, a third, a third, a third. If you want to picture it numerically, 33.3333%. A third. Now, according to Romans chapter 3, how many are righteous? None. None is righteous. No, not one. How many have understanding? No one understands. How many are actually seeking God? No one seeks for God. How many have turned aside? All have turned aside. How many are doing good in the present generation? No one does good. Not even one. Paul, how many have sinned and fallen short of God's glory? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All men are guilty. All are without excuse before God. Nobody has a plea to make before Him. Nobody has a right to His mercy. Not one, not one, not a single one. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. Not one. And yet we come here and we see a third. A third. A third. In every case, two-thirds are spared. If we see anything in this chapter, we see that the present gospel age 
will be characterized by unparalleled mercy. Unparalleled mercy. Acts chapter 17, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He destroys them all. No. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. We're not in the times of ignorance anymore. We've moved on from that. We live in a different time now. We live in the time when Christ Jesus came into the world. We live in a world where a man, the God-man, came to earth and lived in the place of sinners. God has come down. That's the time we live in. He suffered and died instead of us. The righteous has taken the place of the unrighteous. He's been raised from the dead. Death has been defeated. We live in a world where a man has died and come back from the dead and he didn't die anymore. That's actually happened on this planet. That's the world we live in. He's ascended into the heavens. And He sits enthroned over all things as Lord and King. And He is riding forth, conquering and to conquer with His gospel, taking dominion, and He's using every created element to call men to repent. We don't live in the times of ignorance. We do live in the times of unmatched mercy and calling men to repent. God in Christ is showing forth incomprehensible mercy. Every time we see a fraction, we should think, what mercy? We see mercy here in the length of endurance. The length of endurance. When we read passages like, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Surely we recognize the merciful patience of God. All day long. That's what he's saying. All day long. When's the last time you did anything all day long? Never. You get to sleep. He says all day long. I've held out my hands. Now, what we see is the entire age is characterized by mercy all day long, all week long, all year long, generation after generation after generation. God holds out His hands all day long, generation long. If we would have, a, have mercy on a fellow man our whole lives and endure a fellow man our whole lives, be merciful to a fellow man our whole lives, that's nothing. That's just peer to peer. This is God's mercy. He's not enduring peers. He's enduring creatures of the dirt that have rebelled against Him. When God endures with one sinner and holds back the wrath deserved by one sin in that one sinner, and He does it for one moment, that is an eternity's worth of patience and mercy every second. Eternity is breaking into The now, whenever God has mercy on a sinner. It's eternal mercy. We see His mercy in the exhaustive use of means. Again, men say, well, I don't see mercy coming from God. Look at the world. Look at the news. I don't see any mercy. We say, sir, all you see is mercy. All you hear is mercy. The fact that you see is mercy. Your seeing is mercy. 
We're like fish in water that don't know we're wet. The, the entire cosmos, all of creation, is baptized in the mercy of God. And men say, well, I don't, I don't see mercy. It's all mercy. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. His mercy engulfs everything. His mercy extends to everything. Here, His mercy is making use of everything. The earth, the sea, the fresh water, the heavenly bodies, bring them all in. All of the things that we know, we take and substitute for God. Worshiping the creature rather than the creator, God says, I'll take those very things and use them to bring men to repentance. What is repentance essentially if it is not turning from everything not God to God? Seeing the futility and the weakness and the vanity in everything not God and saying, I will not trust in that. I'm turning to Him. And that's what He's doing. He's saying, look at everything not God. It's not me. Turn. Repent. The cries of God's people have come to God. God has heard. God responds in judgment. But even mercy, His judgment comes floating on a, a sea of, of mercy. 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 He's using everything. We see the mercy in the fact that He uses things that we see. If I want to get a specific message to my wife and I want to get it to her early in the morning, I put a note on the coffee pot. That's the first place she's going to go. I put it where she's going to see it. Well, in God's mercy, He's chosen to use things that are in plain sight to everybody. He's not hidden His mercy. If any man would look and see, the entire world is colored with mercy. Everything we see. All men look at the world with mercy lenses. Again, to the point that we don't even notice it. We have to recognize that there will come a day when those lenses will be pulled off for people and they will never again see through the lens of mercy. It'll be over. The times of mercy will be over. The Scripture even tells us that people will cry out for mercy and God will hear them not. He will not listen. Now what human has not seen the earth and the trees and the seas and the waters, the sun or the moon? He's inscribed His mercies on everything. We can't open our eyes without seeing the mercy of God. We see His mercy in the fact that He uses significant things. He uses things that are important to us because He knows that gets our attention. Nobody, no human alive, is utterly ignorant to the importance of the earth, the sea, the waters, heavenly lights. We, we understand at least some aspect of their usefulness. These are the most significant means of our existence on this earth. God's using them. He's after our attention. God is after our eye, saying, look at my mercy, look at my mercy. Infinite mercy stands all day long holding out not just His hands, but every work of His hands as an invitation to men to repent and to throw themselves upon Christ. This is why all men are without excuse. Nobody can say, I didn't see. Nobody can say, I didn't know. Nobody can say, I never heard. God can say, you've never seen anything but mercy. That's all you've ever seen is mercy. God is exhausted the list of created things at His disposal to bring men to repentance. If one of our children were in danger, what would be the time limit 
where we would say, you know, I'm, I'll plead with them to come to safety for about five or six minutes and then I'm done. What, where would, what would the limit be that we would set on our pleading? What means at our disposal would we not use to protect and preserve our children? Would we plead with them quietly or would we plead with them in a way that they would be sure to hear it, sure to know what we mean? This is what God's done. The entire generation, using every means at His disposal, everything right in front of our eyes, things that nobody can ignore, because He is a merciful God. Merciful God. It's very easy for us to look at this passage and and revel in our vindication. Forgetting the trumpets that sounded in our ears that God used to turn us from everything not God to God. The trumpets that He's blowing even now where we're able to realize the futility of the things in our lives. How pitiful are our jobs. How pitiful our livelihood. How pitiful our homes. How pitiful our vacations. How pitiful our pantries. Everything. It's all not God. It will not satisfy. God shows us that. The gospel age is an age of unparalleled mercy. But it will end. It is coming to an end. Now how do we use this? Hopefully already, at least something in your heart has has been stirred to worship God for His mercy. 2 Samuel 24.14 says His mercy is great. Psalm 51.1 says His mercy is abundant. Psalm 119.156, Great is Your mercy, O Lord. Daniel 9.9, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. He owns it. He's got the trademark on mercy. It's His. We all know His mercy is extended down to this day. Right now, He's holding back the winds of judgment. Even now, holding them back. For this present hour, He has endured with mercy our attempts at preaching and hearing. He is enduring with mercy half-hearted singing, half-hearted praying, half-hearted paying attention. He alone is truly Merciful. Only God is worthy of our worship, worthy of our esteem, worthy of our thoughts, worthy of our holy living. He alone is worthy. Then we ought to ascribe that worth to Him in every given means of worship. Worship the God of mercy. Secondly, we need to open our eyes to the reality of judgment and eternity. What I mean is we need to to set ourselves to look for it, to see it. A lot of times we don't see things because we don't give ourselves to say, I'm going to find it. Look for it. Our 2020 gardens will soon bring forth their final fruit. You'll pick off the last one and it'll be ready to turn it all into the ground. It'll be done. So look at it. And remember that you too will someday have your final Production. You will produce the last fruit of your life. Your final flower will bloom and you'll be done. Are you living each moment as if it might be your last opportunity to bring forth a useful fruit of righteousness every second? A fruit of righteousness. Because one of them will be your last. Trees fall over, die, rot. You will die someday. Wherever you are in that moment, there you'll be, sealed in eternity, forever, 
no opportunity to change your state. Your flesh will rot in the ground faster than a tree rots in the woods. The grass fades in the fall. Your summer will soon be over and you will wither and you will die. Now what if, you're, what if the summer of your life has already passed? You say, well, I'm young. I'm not talking about young. Young or old. Your summer might have already passed. You don't know when your autumn and your winter will be. Then why do we keep living like we're still in early spring? Like I've got years. I'm, why do we live that way? You really don't know. The rivers of the earth rise and fall with the rain. Some of them flood with torrential rains. We can look at this and be reminded that a flood of judgment is coming. Watch a creek sometime or a river. Just sit still and watch the water go by. Watch it go by and just think. It never stops. I mean, if, I, if, if we could stop it in its place right here and just ask within a, a four-foot area, how many gallons of water are there? All right, now hit play. And it's flowing. It never stops. Constantly Flowing. Now imagine that every drop were an eternal soul flowing and, and it never stops. This river of, of souls dumping into eternity. It never stops. We get to sleep. The rivers don't take a break when we go to sleep. They don't stop. Souls do not stop plummeting into hell just because we go to sleep. It's a constant flow of souls dumping into eternity. God is saying... You're next. You're coming. Your time is up. You're in the river. You're not on the bank. You're in the river. You're floating that way. Economic enterprise we've seen in our nation in these recent weeks and months. It's up and down, up and down. Look at it. And notice, the things of this world are futile and weak. They're puny. They're pathetic. They cannot stand. They won't stand. We have to stop with our dependence upon man. Not trusting in the uncertainty of riches, but entrusting ourselves to God who richly blesses us with everything we need. It won't last. Every day has a night coming. The night of your life is coming. When will it be? You'll close your eyes for the last time. You'll breathe your last. Your heart will beat its last. You'll, you'll take your last step. You'll nod your head for the last time. You'll scratch something on your body for the last time. And you'll be done. Are you ready? Samuel Rutherford said, it, it is controversy to the world if eternity be coming. It's controversy to the world if eternity be coming. Why? Because we live every moment like eternity is not coming. Like we're going to just continue on. God is using all of creation to say, eternity is coming. Repent, or you shall all likewise perish. Do you have eyes to see it? Will you look for it? Few things are going to make us more useful in our generation than to consistently remind ourselves that our generation will stop. It will end someday. The night is coming for us when no man will work. We'll be done. We'll do our last work. We'll preach our last sermon. We'll hear our last sermon. We'll do our last Bible study. We'll have our last gospel conversation and it'll be done. Night comes. We're, we're finished. It's on its way. I'm afraid that we don't realize it. We don't look for it. We don't think about it. We don't see it. 
And then lastly, let us extend mercy to others. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Now that phrase, compassionate hearts, is the closest New Testament counterpart to the concept of, of mercy as it's used in passages like Psalm 145. His mercy is over all, as the King James translates it, bowels of mercy, deep, internal, tender compassion towards other people. If we've been shown mercy, then we ought to show mercy to others. Jesus Himself said, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. And how do we do it? We join the ranks of the army that God has marshaled. We point men to the God of mercies. We draw their attention. We, we, we do it by being slow to anger. We do it by dealing tenderly with the wayward and the ignorant while being persistent in pointing people to the God of mercy. If this age is going to be characterized by unparalleled mercy from heaven, then we who are heavenly minded ought to be the most merciful people on the planet because we worship the God of mercy. So if I were to ask, where do we see the mercy of God displayed the most clearly, the most pointedly, the most defined, where does it come to a point from the beginning of history to the end of history, where is the focal point of the mercy of God? We would say it's, it's in Christ. As He hangs on the cross, enduring the wrath of the Father for His people in order that He might continue to extend mercy and gather in more. He's, he's, we could say that on the, cross, on the cross, Christ was procuring the enduring mercy of His Father to continue and what had been extended in the past. So when we, when we, we think of mercy, like the attributes of God, almost all of them, we see them culminating at the cross, in the moment of Christ hanging on the cross. That's where we see mercy. And so as the elements of the, the table are passed, let's, let's give our consideration to that. Christ enduring wrath in the place of sinners so that we receive not wrath, but mercy.